Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. You know, we've talked a decent amount about software as a med device on the Global Medical Device Podcast. We've also talked quite a bit about pre-submissions in previous episodes as well. I don't think that we've ever kind of merged or blended these two topics together until now. Joining me on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast is Andrew Frank. Andrew is with Proxima CRO, and we talk about some of the expectations from a documentation standpoint that you should include in your pre-submission if you're a software as a medical device company. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. You know, we talk a lot, well, every so often we talk about software as a medical device. Why is that, that we spend so much time talking about software as a med device? Well, it's one of the fastest growing segments of the medical device industry. And I think if you're paying attention at home, you know, with all the gadgets and smartphones and apps and all of these sorts of things, it kind of makes sense. There's certainly a a lot of growth in this particular area, but it creates some confusion at times, especially with regulatory agencies, because, you know, software is this ethereal thing. It's not a tangible good that I can hold. And sometimes the things that I do from a testing or from a documentation perspective may seem a little bit different. So I thought we would try to address some of those expectations. You know, what is FDA looking for with different types of regulatory submissions for software as a med device? And joining me is Andrew Frank. Andrew is with Proxima Clinical Research and he specializes in regulatory affairs. So Andrew, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Well, thank you, John. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Um, I, I guess a good place to start is um, you, you surface this topic like, John, this is something that, that we're dealing with. This is a kind of a hot topic. I guess maybe that might be a good place to start. What are you seeing as, as sort of the challenge or the obstacle? Uh, and, and why do, does it make sense for us to dive into some of the details today? Certainly. So uh, we have a lot of clients come to us that are, you know, sometimes early stage medical device companies or software companies that want to expand into a medical claim. And they have the question, okay, what, what do we need to have that first step with the FDA? What do we need to have that first conversation and see where we, we sit in terms of regulatory pathway, get, get that feed, initial feedback from FDA in terms of what they, they're going to expect us to do for our device? And um, typically, you know, that first interaction for most medical devices would be a, a pre-submission meeting. I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with that. And um, so that, that meeting would is a relatively formal affair. You have to prepare a packet and send it in and schedule a, a one-hour meeting with the FDA where you discuss it. Um, you receive written feedback from the FDA on specific questions that you're trying to, to address in that pre-sub. And these questions can range from anything to the suitability of a, of a predicate or a 510K to specifics about testing plans, uh, verification and validation methods, or, or details of clinical studies. There's a wide range of things you can discuss in a pre-sub. Um, but there are some kind of base minimum things that we see that if we try to engage with FDA too early and the, the client doesn't have these things, um, you know, FDA 
consistently asks, you know, wh- where are these things? We, you know, we, we need to have these things in order to assess your device and answer these questions that you've come to us with. And um, so for software devices, you know, sometimes these are created somewhat quickly. You know, it's a fast-moving environment, very competitive. And that means that sometimes, you know, all of the, the documentation or the risk analysis hasn't, hasn't all been put together. Um, and so, you, you know, it's an important thing to, to put that together for that initial conversation with the FTA so that you, you look like you've, you have a firm foundation in these things and you, you have an idea of risks and risk mitigation. You really want to present that as a, as a good face to the FTA in this first inter- interaction. And so, you know, some of these things that that you can start to put together, one of the ways that you can get a hint of what FDA is looking for is they have published online uh, a pretty detailed guidance about what, what software devices need to provide to FDA for a market submission. So this would be a 510K or a de novo. And they have a whole list of documents that with quite a bit of detail involved in uh, in describing each one of them. Um, but then the question comes, well, this is a whole lot of work. This is going to take months to put all of this together. Do we need all of this for a pre-sub? And the answer we've figured out is no, you can, there are parts of it you can skip or you can summarize. You just need a plan. You don't need the full, uh, full potato. And so uh, I'm happy to, to talk about kind of those, those differences sure. today. Yeah, sure. So let's, uh, well, sometimes it's hard to figure out where to jump in. So we'll just jump right in the middle. Um, so Andrew is mentioning this um, guidance document. It is, as far as guidance documents are concerned, a little bit, got a little bit of age to it. Um, and I was actually surprised by the data on this as it relates to software, but it's guidance for the content of pre-market submissions for software contained in medical devices. And this actually dates back to 2005. So that's eons ago as far as software is concerned. Absolutely. And uh, we'll be sure to share a link to that. But to your point, uh, this is for pre-market submissions and pre-market is sort of code for something like a 510K or, or de novo. Whereas a pre-sub, you know, I know that pre-sub uh, or the Q submission program has been around for a bit. It seems like it's more in vogue within the past few years. And, you know, I guess before we dive into the specifics of the software side of things, I assume to your point that a lot of the listeners probably do know what a pre-sub is or have heard us talk about it in the past, but maybe talk about some of the benefits of a pre-submission, you know, regardless if it's software as a med device or just regular med device, why would one consider going the pre-sub route? Absolutely. Uh, I think a pre-sub is, is vital to almost any um, submission uh, to the FDA, it's a chance to get formal feedback from FDA. Um, they have to put down in writing what their stance is on a particular issue, um, and that that allows you to to move forward with some confidence that your testing plan will actually meet you know the FDA requirements. You don't have to guess on this. You don't have to spend a whole bunch of money designing a, a, a testing plan or even a clinical study plan without that FDA feedback um, and and you know, a formal feedback, even that, you know, you have in writing, you can refer back to it and, and say, we followed this plan. And, you know, it, it, this FDA review team agreed that it would be sufficient to, to meet the intended use that we describe. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I was just going to say, I, I've had a, a few personal experiences with, with pre-subs and, and a lot of anecdotes from other 
uh, companies that, that we've worked with. And it's just a really invaluable uh, way to get an audience with FDA relatively early uh, in your development cycles so that you have some clarity about you know how this is going to be viewed in the eyes of regulators. But it's also a good opportunity, I think, maybe more so than anything else, for me to start the dialogue with FDA about this thing that that I hope to bring to market sometime in the not too distant future. You know, remember folks that uh, a lot of times, if you don't think about it without a pre-submission, if, if the, you put together a 510K and you send it to FDA, that's a lot of times that's the first time they've ever heard of anything that you're doing. So the, you know, it's all new to them and there's probably going to be lots of questions. So pre-sub is a great way to try to get some of those questions surfaced a little bit earlier so you can understand, you know, how their FDA is looking at this particular product or, or this space that, that you're pursuing. So it's a really good opportunity. And like I said, you can do this generally pretty early in the process, but the point of this conversation is discussing how this relates to software as a med device. And to your point, if you read that pre-submission guidance, the list of documentation that is expected for uh, a medical device containing software, including software as a medical device, is it's pretty lengthy. Um, and so it's a little confusing if, you know, what do I need to provide to FDA? Again, software is a little bit different. Uh, it's, it's not tangible good. It's not something I hold in my hand per se. Um, so let's dive into some of the expectations. You know, what are the sort of the minimum barriers to entry, if you will, a software perspective, if I'm going to pursue a pre-submission, sure. I I think you know uh, I think the number one thing is is a really detailed um, but but still very clear uh, device description, and you know this this ties into your point about pre-subs is you, you want when you end up submitting your 510k or Genovo to FDA and they're actually making regulatory decisions about your company that will impact whether or not you can go to market. You want them to already be familiar with your device. Um, you don't want them to be asking, "Well, what does it actually do?" Um, and you know what we found in this pre-sub process is that no matter how detailed we make this this device description, there's still always questions that reviewers have. There's still something that that they sometimes misunderstand. They're humans too, right? And they have limited time to read through these things. Um, and sometimes it's you know it's a a thing that we we did leave out or we didn't think about, and um, they just want more information about it. So these these precepts are really critical to to describing your device, making sure the FDA is comfortable with it, familiar with it, so that when it does get time to doing that that full market submission, they can they can breeze through it. They know exactly what your device looks like, what it does, what it feels like, what what are the risks associated with it, um, and so you know for. For software in particular, I think um, one thing that that most um, software developers struggle with is is this intended use statement. So this is one of the most critical pieces that, of information you can give to the FDA. Is um, a simple statement is typically about a paragraph long um, that describes what medical benefit are you going to bring to the patient? How are you going to impact their workflow? Um, that they're how they travel through the healthcare system, and um, this tends to be very specific. Uh, it needs to, you know, name a specific uh, medical condition that they're trying to um, that you're trying to influence, trying to improve, trying to diagnose, um, and it needs to describe a little bit about how you're going to accomplish that. So, it, you know, it, are you an AI algorithm that that does this? Uh, are you 
uh, something that that uses um, takes radiographic images. You know, there's lots of different examples, um, but these are, are kinds of some of the things that that um, that is really important to describe. And I think um, FDA oftentimes has suggestions um, to, and changes that they want to make um, to your intended use statement throughout the process. And this is another really good thing to discuss in a pre. And on the topic of intended use, I was actually, um, as serendipity would have it, I suppose, uh, I've been doing a deep dive into reviewing uh, risk management um, standards. Specifically, I was reviewing the ISO TIR 24971-2020 document. This is a guidance document that, that accompanies 14971. And there's an annex in that particular guidance, uh, Annex A, and there's a section in there that has a lot of questions that can help guide you and 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 help you figure out this intended use. Because to your point, I mean, this is the basis of everything that you're doing from a medical device perspective. This is what you claim your product is going to do, and depending on you know what you claim your product is going to do is ultimately going to have a, a indicator or influence on how it's going to be classified. So it's really important to 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 really focus on that and that in every conversation that you have with FDA. Definitely. I mean, this intended use, it influences how, what clinical evidence you need to generate. Um, it influences how you're going to be classified, what re- your regulatory path will be, what predicates you can use. It, it's really the linchpin for the whole thing. All right. So what are some other things that would be expected to, to be included at the pre-sub stage for software as a med device? Sure. So um, I think, you know, a good description of, of the patient population um, as well as the intended user. Um, so sometimes um, good description of, of the patients that the device will be targeted towards, but also the, the different users who will be using the device. That might be physicians or healthcare providers of all sorts. So that might be nurses. That might be the patients themselves. Um, and so this, is, this will influence your, your risk analysis and your usability concerns. Um, I think a, a, another good thing to include would be um, user interface screenshots. I think this is another piece that we get to where a lot of companies are very early stage. You know, maybe they have a, a smash algorithm that can do something that no one, no one else can do, but they haven't quite built the front end. And, uh, and FDA is going to want to see it. Um, they want to see what it looks like to those patients, what it looks like to those physicians, what your device output will be. And, and Andrew, in your experience, uh, you know, the, the user interface and screenshots, you know, do you think that, that it's okay to be, you know, kind of wireframe, lo-fi, or should these be more high fidelity types of screenshots? Any opinion on that? Um, they can be wireframe. Um, what FDA is really interested in is what information are you providing to patients and healthcare providers? And then how are they going to use that information? So, you know, do they have the ability to interpret the test results or interpret the information you're giving them? Are you maybe giving them information that's not fully supported by the research? Um, you know, it might be more speculative in nature. Um, so that's why they're really interested in the user interface is, you know, what, how does it tie into your intended use? Uh, you know, or make sure you're not overstepping uh, what you're providing to patients and users. Yeah. And I, you know, software is one of those tricky things too, that, you know, there are uh, a few different uh, I guess practices, so to speak, you know, and they're in the risk-based approaches, like determining like level of concern, and you know, like if you're outside the U.S. and pursuing EU uh, under the EU MDR, they 
bring in these different risk classes for software. So uh, what about, you know, like uh, level of concern and risk? How important are these things at, at the pre-submission stage? A very important. Um, I think they, these are probably the, the most important things to have really firmly established before you start the conversation with FDA. Um, so, uh, you know, level of concern is kind of FDA's specific um, risk classification system for software. Um, it, it, it has a few quirks to it. I think the most important is that um, any mitigations that are software-based cannot be considered um, in, when you evaluate level of concern. And that means that um, uh, if you're a software-only device, then you basically can't include any of your mitigations when you, when you look at level of concern. And you have yeah. to end up saying, what's the worst possible outcome um, that this device can provide? And then what, what is the possible harm to patients? Um, and then that ends up getting filtered into you know, either it's a severe harm that would be life-threatening or irreversibly debilitating without surgical intervention or, or major intervention, or it would be a minor harm, which more or less encompasses everything else, including you know, increased risk of certain diseases or increased risk of, of different conditions or an incorrect diagnosis or even a delayed diagnosis would be considered a minor, minor harm or minor injury. And all of those would end up in the moderate level of concern. And then if you're, um, if you don't, if there are no possible harms, then you would be a minor level of concern. For a software as a medical device, this probably isn't uh, ever an option. Um, I think uh, this would probably be more something. So for software that's contained in a, in a medical device that has um, doesn't have an impact on the intended use. I want to remind folks I'm talking with Andrew Frank. Andrew is a regulatory affairs specialist with Proxima Clinical Research Organization. You can learn more about Proxima CRO by going to proximacro.com and that's P R O X I M A C R O.com. And uh, they help companies with regulatory submissions, pre-subs, 510Ks, de novos, as well as you know, clinical research and keeping this all together. And it's, it's a team of experts. Uh, I've um, worked with quite a few of the folks at the Proxima team and, and top-notch folks. So go check them out, ProximaCRO.com. And uh, while we're taking this quick break, I also want to remind folks that Greenlight Guru is here to help. Uh, we have the only medical device quality management system software platform on the market today. It's designed specifically and only for the medical device industry, and it's been designed by actual medical device professionals. So whether you're a, quote, traditional medical device or software as a med device, whatever the case may be, we've got you covered. We've got workflows, especially to help you through the design and development process by capturing your design controls, design reviews, your design history file, your full ISO 14971 risk management and all the aspects of that, document management, change management. And then as you get to market, we have workflows to help you with quality events, including CAPAs and complaints and nonconformances. So go to www.greenline.guru to learn a whole lot more about the Greenlight Guru Medical Device Quality Management System software platform. And if you're so inclined, click the button to request a demo. And we'd be thrilled to talk to you about some of your needs and see if there might be some opportunity that we can help you with. So enjoy that. All right. So Andrew, we've talked quite a bit about the things that should be included. Um, there's probably a kind of a, a next class, if you will, of, of documents or items that 
don't necessarily need to be fully vetted per se, or they could be a little bit less mature in their life cycle as, as artifacts. But let's talk a little bit about some of those things like VMV planning and maybe some of the software architecture and things of that nature. Uh, absolutely. I, I think um, the verification and, and validation of the VNV plan, um, I think this is something that FDA always asks us about if it's not included. Um, you know, they, they kind of want to see, have you thought about this? Um, but typically, if we do include some statement that, yes, we are planning um, to do software verification and validation according to this method, and you know, kind of outline. It just it just has to be a few sentences, really, um, just to let FDA know that okay, we we do understand this, uh, and we do understand that this is something that's important to consider. Um, because I, I guess for those who aren't familiar, the verification and validation for a software-only device is a major undertaking. Uh, this is something that can potentially take you know um, weeks to months to complete. It's a it's a huge part of the the QMS, final QMS system for a software only device. And um, so you know it is something that you don't necessarily have to have, you know, to coming into the the first interaction with the FDA, but it's something you need to be thinking about for your your company uh, pro- projected timeline as a whole. And this is usually the time in this this type of conversation where uh, I want to continue to dispel the myth about uh, FDA expectations with respect to product development. Even if you are a software, I think there's this perception that especially a lot of software as a med device folks have that that to be a regulated medical device, there's an expectation that you have to be waterfall and you can't be agile. Um, but that the yeah. folks that is entirely false. Andrew, I don't know if you have any thoughts <laughs> about that. Um, no, that's a really, really great um Great thing to, to dispel because I, I do think you know FDA is very open to different software development systems. They do want you to to document and describe your software development environment. Um, so that would include your process, whether you're waterfall or agile. But, you know, and I think they they want you to describe you know your code review process. You know, how does how does software make it into the final production code? Um, but at the end of the day, you know the as long as you have that VNV plan, um, you can be, you know, very, oh, I guess, open on the design side of things as long as it's well documented. And then, as long as you have a robust VNV plan, then that would still suffice for medical devices. It seems like, and you know, again, pre-sub is is a, a means for me to try to communicate to FDA what I'm doing with this product. And it seems to me uh, that a picture is important. So I, I think it like something like a software architecture diagram or something of that nature. It seems like that'd be invaluable as part of, of a pre-sub. What do you think? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's something that is listed um, in that guidance document as, as even separate from the device description. And we typically do put it into our device description section of the pre-sub, but it's, um, it, I think it's listed separately because of how important it is. Um, you know, I think FDA reviewers are busy. Um, they're going to be looking through the document quickly, and it's it's really good to have that visual representation of how how does information move through the device what what inputs are you taking from the environment or from patients or from databases or from physicians or from diagnostic tests you know what are those inputs into the device how does information flow through it what what modules or algorithms are involved and then finally how does it get put together and output um, what what does that output look like what is it uh, when it ends up going back to the user um, how does it impact the clinical workflow? And you know, I guess that 
that last piece is outside the the software architecture and is something different. But all of those previous pieces, they all flow into the software architecture. Um, you know, I, I think it's okay for it to be um, a very high level in this initial conversation with FDA. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to have your software broken down to, into individual unit testing modules and all of that. I think this is more, should be a diagram of, of how does information flow through the device? What are the different logic um, engines that are associated with your device, whether it's machine learning or traditional logic gates or you know, however, however your software is designed. Um, you know, I guess what, yeah, what are the different inputs that end up providing that intended use? Yeah, totally makes sense. So I'm sure you're probably keeping track uh, <laughs> as we're going through this to make sure we're covering all the must-haves, if you will, from a pre-sub perspective. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that we've left off the list of, of expected documentation to provide as part of a pre-sub for software as a med device? I think uh, cybersecurity. Uh, oh yeah, that's a big topic. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a hot topic. This is another one similar to the VNV plan. You know, I think it's good to have a description of of kind of an outline of of what you're planning to do. Uh, the, uh, this should be part of your risk uh, hazard analysis. You should identify cybersecurity risks and then um, list out different possible mitigations for them. Whether that's secure communication protocols or limiting access to certain users, that, that sort of thing. And there's, there's a lot of kind of, it's a whole other conversation on its own in terms of how, how to meet these sure. requirements. And I think, you know, tied into that is this idea of software of unknown pedigree uh, or off-the-shelf software. Um, there's lots of different names for, for this, but basically it's, it's any software, any code that you incorporate into your device that you don't have full control over the code. Um, you've, you've imported it in from a different source. Um, this can also be, you know, fully packaged software, um, you know, that you're running on top of, whether that's Linux or Docker or Amazon Web Services. That, that would all kind of fall into the off-the-shelf off software um, description. And, um, you know, FD doesn't require you to verify and validate all of AWS for your medical device if you run on it, right? But you do need to verify and, and validate the, the pieces of it that uh, apply to your device and pieces of it that you are going to be using. Sure. And, and on that particular topic too, I mean, I, I would encourage folks and uh, yeah, I've been, I was going to say I was going to be on the edge of my seat, uh, but if that's the case, I, I would have been on the edge of my seat for about a year and a half now, but keep hearing that FDA is going to come out with some new guidance as with respect to uh, CSV, computer system validation, software validation, and, and part 11 and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's not happened yet, but, you know, sort of through the grapevine, what I've heard is FDA accepts uh, your, you as a practice to uh, assess and evaluate what that software vendor might have already done with respect to VMV activities. Uh, and, you know, like AWS is a really good example. They have mm -hmm. a whole library of content and information uh, to help you make that case. So do try to lean on your software providers uh, where you can, because there's a good chance that they may have already done some of these sorts of things, especially if they work in any sort of regulated industry. You don't need to reinvent the wheel, but, but do factor in your particular use case, maybe a slight variation or, or difference from from that software that you're purchasing, but just keep that in mind. All right, so we've covered quite a bit of information and you know, if we're going through this exhaustive list, and folks, I do encourage you to, to review this pre-submission 
uh, guidance that, you know, the link again is going to be with the text accompanying this, this podcast. But there's a handful of documents that we didn't really talk about, mm-hmm. including the SDS, traceability matrix, revision level history, and unresolved bugs. So uh, I guess I don't know if it's easy enough to summarize why those are not needed at the time of a pre-submission. I think it's pretty obvious, but it wouldn't hurt to, to hear you say so. Uh, yes, I, I definitely agree that these are these are things that are more on the the final you know um, market ready device, and so this these could be be omitted in, entirely from in this initial conversation with the FDA. All right, Andrew. While we wrap things up today, any last minute tips or pointers or or gotchas or or things that you think are really important for companies to understand about this entire process of preparing a software as a med device pre sub. Um, I think just be prepared for you for FDA to be um, a little bit skeptical going into these things. They, you know, they're definitely a conservative organization. They want to, uh, they want to, you know, allow health advancements to occur, but they definitely want to make sure that they have uh, lots of documentation and uh, clinical evidence to support them. So, um, be prepared to make a strong argument as to as to why you your testing plan is is accurate and and uh, appropriate and that's kind of out of the scope of the conversation today about just software but i think um you know one of the one of the most important things to engage with the fda in this pre-sub process uh, would be testing plans and um so this this all the software documentation is just facilitates that that final conversation you have with them for sure and and i know sometimes folks uh, uh may get a little frustrated with regulatory bodies such as fda but remember you know, FDA's job is to protect and promote the health of U.S. citizens who are going to eventually receive your product. So they need evidence to, to support that it's going to be safe. Uh, so just keep that in mind that they have an awesome responsibility uh, as it relates to uh, healthcare and patients in, in our country. So just bear that in mind and you know, do yourself a favor and, and, and pursue these pre-submission options because this is, a, like I said at the beginning, this is a great way to engage FDA in a dialogue about what it is that you're doing, to communicate, and, and to share you know, why this product is important. So you know, this is your story. These documents help you tell that story. And if you need some help, um, you know, remember, there, there are people here who have this expertise. Been, of course, I've been talking with Andrew Frank, but he and and his company Proxima CRO. This is what they do. So, I encourage you to to go check them out and learn a little bit more about them. Reach out to them. Go to proximacro.com. And I know Andrew and the team at, at Proxima will be more than thrilled to have a conversation with you to provide a little bit of guidance and some tips and pointers. Andrew, thank you so much for being a guest on the Global Medical Device Podcast today. Yes, John. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. And folks, again, remember Greenlight Guru. We're also here to help. Uh, we have that medical device quality management system that's going to be really important as you're going through design and development and eventually as you bring this, these products to market. So go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. As always, thank you for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, the number one podcast in the medical device industry. And that's because of all of you. So keep spreading the word, sharing this with your friends and colleagues. We definitely appreciate it. As always, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.